Welcome to the third installment of the Annotations Podcast, coming at you from the margins. I'm Amy Fountain, a PhD candidate in English at UC Davis. This episode is about bestsellers throughout history, but our theme is to be taken with a grain of salt since the idea of the bestseller wasn't always super relevant. To wit, Cordelia Ross will be looking at a medieval text, and in the medieval period, very few texts were produced in the first place. This is because only the wealthy could afford books, and there weren't all that many wealthy people. Chaucer, for instance, of Canterbury fame, was considered to have an extensive library, and he only had 50 books. Books were so expensive because they were handwritten by well-paid scribes and decorated extensively. This was all done on parchment, which was made from pigs or lambskin, which had to be treated, and which not everyone had access to, even if they were illiterate, which most people weren't. So while everyone has access either to a computer or to a paper notebook now, occasions and opportunities for writing were few and far between in the Middle Ages. The text we'll be hearing about is the very medieval-sounding 12th century title, St. Patrick's Purgatory, by Henry of Psaltery. I'm not real clear on what happened to his last name, but I will assume there were not a preponderance of Henry's in Psaltery. We'll also be hearing from Annette Holbert and Becky Kling, who are going to tell us about 18th and 19th century bestsellers. These were bestsellers in a more contemporary sense, from a time when the novel was on its way to being the primary form of entertainment and when literacy was on the rise. And even when readers couldn't afford books during this time, traveling lending libraries popped up, delivering books door to door, and people could access a lot more titles than they'd have been able to purchase. The 18th century bestseller Annette's going to tell us about is the epistolary novel Pamela. I'm sure you know what an epistolary novel is, but as a refresher, it's one that's comprised of fictional letters. Uh, Weirdly, Pamela started out as a series of form letters for polite society to copy for different occasions. Like I said, literacy was on the rise, but people weren't, like, great at writing. Um, Also interestingly, Pamela is part of the lineage of the recently best-selling and extremely erudite, you probably haven't heard of it, Fifty Shades of Grey. Then we move on to the 19th century, where Becky is going to revive Charles Reed, who is a best-selling Victorian author, but one whose work has sadly not survived the popularity test of time. Guest starring with Becky is UC Davis alum, Dr. Leilani Serafin. Before we get started, I wanted to share a quick story about a worst seller, and one that might surprise people. It's one of the most enduring classics of American literature, considered by many to be the best American novel of all time. Okay, so Herman Melville was born in 1819 and was raised upper middle class in New York City. His father was a high-end importer and merchant, but he was also a speculator who borrowed a lot of money to finance new ventures. After he failed to break into the fur trade, the family essentially went bankrupt and the sons had to go into various trades to make up the deficit. Our Melville, Herman, failed to get a white-collar job like he'd wanted to, so at age 20, he enlisted as a cabin boy on a merchant ship bound for England. The work wasn't so bad, so when he got back, he signed up for another job on a whaling ship in 1841. After a year, the ship stopped in the Marquesas Islands in Polynesia, where Melville and another crew member deserted. This was both a good and a bad idea. It was a bad idea because they were captured by local cannibals for four months before they escaped and joined another whaling ship. On it, they helped incite a mutiny and ended up in Hawaii for a while before eventually hitching a ride on a Navy ship back to Massachusetts. Getting back to why the desertion and the cannibals wasn't all bad was that when Melville got home, he immediately started writing about his experiences as the basis for what would become his first novel, Typee, A Peep at Polynesian Life, published in 1846. People loved it. So Melville wrote a sequel called Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas. At this point, Melville was super famous and a hit with the ladies. His third novel, though, was panned by critics, 
and even though it later became highly acclaimed, it sent off a series of poorly received novels and damaged his reputation. That third novel was called Moby Dick. Sadly, the love that people eventually felt for Moby Dick came too late, and Melville died thinking it was a failure. For the rest of his career, he worked as a customs inspector who just wrote poetry on the weekends. Isn't that sad? It is. But don't worry, the rest of this episode is way more uplifting. I hope you enjoy it. Over and out. Hi, this is Jennifer, and to begin our trans-historical romp through literary bestsellers, we're going to talk to Cordelia, our local medievalist, about an example from the medieval period. So if somebody asked me to identify the popular texts of the medieval period, I might say something like Beowulf or Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, but those aren't the texts we're talking about today, right? No, we're actually talking about a 12th century manuscript. Um, it's called St. Patrick's Purgatory. That's what it's called in the English, at least. It was originally written in Latin. Uh, it was by, we believe, Henry of Psaltery. We have, it's H. Psaltery, so everyone assumes that means Henry. He was a Cistercian monk, and we believe the manuscript was produced around 1179 to 1184, somewhere in there. So since it isn't one of the usual suspects when it comes to medieval texts, how did you find it? A footnote. That's where all the amazing information is. I'm writing a chapter on a story from Gerard of Wales, and I was reading through it, and it had a footnote about this because Gerard of Wales mentions the site. St. Patrick's Purgatory actually was a cave in Ireland, um, and it's still a historical site, though the Protestants got really mad and filled in the cave a while ago. So maybe to get our bearings, you can give us a quick overview of what the text is about. Does it have a story? Yes, it is the best story. I love this. Um, So it's a vision narrative, but unlike all other vision narratives, which take place, someone, you know, presumably dies and they were a bad Christian and someone takes them through hell or purgatory saying, you were a bad Christian and look at what's going to happen to you. But you know what? If you repent and you decide and we let you have a second chance, you can go tell everybody else what you saw here or, you know, imagined here because it's all in your head. You don't physically go. Well, this one actually physically takes place. It's still a pilgrimage to this day, um, a very popular pilgrimage, actually. So you go to the site, and the idea is that St. Patrick, in despair, way back when, said, oh, God, help me. I can't convert these heathen Irish. And Jesus appears to him and says, well, since they won't be converted unless they see it because they believe in things seen rather than in promises, here's a cave and guess what? It leads to purgatory. So if they go in there, if they're willing to, because you know they could die, and if they die in purgatory, they lose both their body and soul. But if they're willing to do it, they'll be convinced. And lo and behold, (laughs) so the story is about Sir Owen going through purgatory and his trials and tribulations. And what's particularly interesting about it is around this time, they started being really interested in ocular theory in the 12th century, the idea, how do we see things? How does that connect with our nerves and brain? They actually knew some of this stuff. And the text actually is really emphatic. He sees this with his bodily eyes. He sees this with his bodily eyes over and over and over again. So it's actually almost also an investigation of how can we know things and how effective are our senses when we trust them or don't trust them. So is there anything else in this text that you want to talk about that you found particularly interesting? interesting or provocative. There is one other part of this text that I find very, very fun and fascinating. At the very end, 
some person hears the story, they actually do a lecture, they're trying to convince other doubting people, and the guy speaks up and says, well, why should I believe you? Everyone knows that when you go into a dark place and shut the door, you imagine things. Why Why is this different? And they say, well, I saw it with my bodily eyes and the whole sense of the physicality of it. And in the medieval period, actually, physicality was important. You actually physically changed, perhaps, if you saw something, something happened in your eyes. But was, what was particularly interesting about this idea is that they were aware of sensory deprivation. You know, nowadays we have therapy where you go into those water chambers and turn off all the lights and you experience a brief sense of euphoria. Or if your mind is impressionable and maybe prone to fracturing, you actually can have psychotic breaks <laughs> and you can rewire your brain, you can be brainwashed, and that seems to be kind of a weird part of this is why should we trust you? You've been told to believe this, then you were shut in a dark space and then you believed it. So they're actually really legitimately questioning rationalism and knowledge and the senses and how far we can trust the senses to figure out how our world works. And I, that's ended up what I ended up writing about. And I think it's a very interesting part of the text. Very interesting. So who was reading texts during this period, and why do you think they would like the ideas in this one? Well, the vision narrative genre was very popular from about the 10th through the 13th century, and the idea was around this time there were some huge schisms in religion. You know, the idea was the church was really coming down hard, particularly in Ireland, on let's say, innovative interpretations of Christianity. And so the vision narratives became very popular because the idea was people who doubted would be convinced and then they would help convince other people who doubted. And it was a didactic genre meant to teach in a way that was less about having faith that the Latin they're quoting at you means that you should do these things because people didn't understand Latin other than the clergy, and so that was problematic. So that's why people were very interested in vision narratives. But again, this one is one of the last, it's in the later period, and it seems to be doing something more, something about knowledge and rationalism and how do we reconcile rationalism with faith. So given that it's not widely read today, what kind of evidence do we have that it was popular in medieval times? It actually exists in over 150 extant manuscripts from Latin, and it was translated into multiple different languages. Um, in fact, in, there are two very famous Middle English translations, as well as adaptations. And then Marie de France actually translated it into Old French as well. So widely popular. The extant manuscripts range from the 12th to the 17th centuries. That's around the time it apparently disappeared. But it's fabulous. It should come back. Do you have a sense of when and why you think it fell out of favor, despite the fact that it probably should come back? Well, it was written in a dead romance language that's, you know, difficult. <laughs> um, and it's a Catholic text, and you know how England got. Um, in fact, the cave was filled up because of Protestant rage, so I imagine it had a lot to do with, you know, Catholicism not being such a great thing for a while, and uh, in a language that wasn't terribly accessible to a ton of people after a while. And it was old. I mean, a lot of medieval manuscripts sort of fell out of favor, disappeared. Even Beowulf did for a while. Well, it sounds like a really fascinating text that's been lost to history as a bestseller. Maybe we can bring it back. 
Yes, absolutely. I'm all for it. Imagine a book so popular that it immediately spawned a merchandising craze. Action figures, artwork, unauthorized sequels, the whole works. Okay, you don't have to stretch your imagination that far. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series is just one example of a recent series that captured the public imagination. You need only head to the wizarding world of Harry Potter at Universal Studios to see that phenomenon firsthand. You can grab a meal at the Leaky Cauldron, choose a wizard wand at Ollivander's wand shop, or even eat disgustingly flavored jelly beans in order to get closer to Harry Potter's magical world. All right, so Harry Potter is just one example, but imagine another kind of wildly popular book that also seems a little bit dangerous to read. Maybe it broaches a taboo topic or isn't quite as wholesome as Hermione Granger. Maybe it's a little bit shameful to read this book on public transportation. Maybe you'd rather read it on a Kindle so no one can get a glimpse of the cover. And it's not like you're reading Lolita by Nabokov. It's a book that isn't seen as being literary enough to balance out its popularity. Still, let's say that this book is a bestseller tied to a blockbuster empire. Now we're getting into Fifty Shades of Grey territory. For those of you who don't know, or who have been living under a rock during the 2000s, Fifty Shades of Grey was published in 2011 by an enigmatic figure named E.L. James. That's obviously a pen name. It's a trilogy that could probably be found in the erotic romance section of a bookstore. If you know anything about its publication history, you might know that E.L. James originally developed it as fan fiction for the Twilight series by Stephanie Meyer, another very popular and somewhat maligned series about love-struck vampires. The story goes that E.L. James changed the character names and removed her book from fan fiction websites once it started to get really popular. But there are lots of erotic romance novels out there. Why did this one strike such a chord? Well, the fan base was supposedly quite specific. News networks started reporting that Fifty Shades of Grey was popular with married women over 30, leaving some to dub it mommy porn. Of course, Saturday Night Live capitalized on the joke with a fake Amazon commercial depicting husbands trying to surprise their wives on Mother's Day, only to find out they had been replaced by a copy of Fifty Shades. Is that Fifty Shades of Grey? Bill Hader's dad character asks. No, it's a cookbook, Vanessa's, Vanessa Bayer's character replies. So let's momentarily look beyond the stereotyping of the mom demographic and think more about what makes a book like Fifty Shades of Grey so incredibly popular that makes it a marketing craze. Has this happened before? Sure it has. All we have to do is look back to Samuel Richardson's masterpiece first published in 1741, Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded. The basic plot of Pamela is that the title character, a chambermaid, resists her master's many, many creative attempts to seduce her. Spoiler ahead, in case you haven't read the book, I'll wait for just a second, Pamela is introduced as a guileless crusader for class mobility, someone who infiltrates aristocratic society by first resisting the advances of her lecherous master and finally marrying him, marrying the reformed rake. It's all written in an epistolary format, which basically means that it consists of letters that Pamela writes to her parents. We get a lot of first-person perspective. To say that Pamela was just a bestseller may understate its significance to the literary world. 
it's more difficult to track actual numbers of the book this old, since many people passed it around and read it in groups, but it had a huge audience. And like any of today's bestsellers, it was integrated into other media. You could buy Pamela artwork or buy Pamela merchandise. And if your taste ran more towards Saturday Night Live style satire, you could read one of the many authorized sequels that made fun of it. These included Henry Fielding's An Apology for the Life of Miss Shamala Andrews that was written in April 1741 and probably is the most popular today. The anonymously published Pamela Censured, also written in April 1741. It's a very popular time to read this this type of book. Or the two volumes of John Kelly's Pamela Conduct in the High Life, written in September 1741. Yes, that's right. He wrote two books that made fun of Pamela. He had a lot of time. What were these sequels making fun of? Well, let's just say that Pamela had more in common with Fifty Shades of Grey than with Harry Potter. From an 18th century standpoint, Pamela included some scandalous stuff. Right off the bat, Pamela's escapades included some material that many viewed as being intentionally provocative. Again, I'll just reiterate that Mr. B, Pamela's boss, is very persistent and creative in his attempts to seduce his maid. Pamela, on the other hand, is a paragon of virtue. But some more conservative readers insisted that Samuel Richardson was intentionally including sexy scenes in order to amp up the frenzied public reaction. It got so serious that readers divided into Pamelist and anti-Pamelist camps. Basically, some critics were adamantly opposed to Richardson's descriptions of Mr. B's amorous exploits. And the other group thought that Richardson was justified in his methods because ultimately he's trying to show how Pamela sticks to her morals. Either camp you choose, things got heated. Richardson even weighed in on the controversy and wrote a sequel to show that Pamela keeps on making good choices as Mr. B's wife. And the great thing is that Richardson wasn't just defending himself. He also integrated some of the unauthorized sequels into his own authorized sequel, just to show that he was capable of hanging with the satirists. Of course, and this is important, he never admitted that he was intentionally trying to write provocative scenes. So we can't necessarily draw any conclusions about his intentions. So what, if anything, can we conclude about the similarities and differences between a book like Fifty Shades of Grey and a book like Pamela? Both were media sensations in their time, both scandalized the public, and both were satirized mercilessly. Richardson would be so happy that Pamela has certainly made its way into the canon, whereas Fifty Shades of Grey often gets a bad rap for being poorly written. But hey, no judgment here. In a hundred years or so, it may be more significant that a book like Fifty Shades was so immensely popular than if it got a good review in the New York Times book review section. And ultimately, both books have inspired bigger conversations about social distinctions and class. One of the reasons people were so upset by Pamela was that it starred a chambermaid who climbs the social ladder just by refusing to have sex with Mr. B. The message is that class isn't always linked to virtue. Revolutionary, right? And I'm not sure if I can make an argument off the cuff for a class critique in Fifty Shades, but there's something, certainly there's something to be said for how the public perceives its intended audience. Could it be that one of the reasons it gets universally panned is because there are certain class associations with who unabashedly reads it? How do we choose what's inherently good writing and what gets thrown in the trash can of literary history? 
uh, whatever you think, I hope that you feel free to read whatever you want on the bus or on the subway. I know that I certainly won't judge you. Hi, this is Becky here to talk about a Victorian author you've probably never heard of, but who is one of the most famous authors in his day? Charles Reed. In fact, I imagine that Charles Reed is probably rolling in his grave with delight right now as I talk about him, because one of his dreams was to make a lasting impact, but his popularity seemed to end with the Victorian era. Other famous authors of the day, such as Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins, Algernon Swinburne, and Margaret Oliphant, all praised his work. In a review of Reed's novel in The Gentleman's Magazine in 1882, Walter Besant declared, Of all living men who write novels, he is the most widely known, the most read, and the most admired. In 1889, W.L. Courtney also remarked that no novelist commanded better sales in America, the British colonies, and England than did Charles Reed. He was not a one-hit wonder, either. He wrote numerous novels and plays. Yet, it was the publication in 1856 of his third novel, It Is Never Too Late to Mend, that made Reed famous. Before we can understand why Reed fell out of fame, we will first try to understand why he was so influential in his time. Joining us to discuss this issue is Leilani Serafin, one of the only other people I know who reads Charles Reed. I'd even venture to call Leilani one of the nation's premier Charles Reed scholars. Even if there were numerous Reed scholars out there, I'd venture to bet Leilani would still be one of them. But the fact of the matter is not many people read or study Charles Reed. So, hey Leilani, thanks for joining us. Becky, thanks for having me. Okay, so maybe we can start by talking about how we first discovered Charles Reed. Well, I first found out about him from a Victorian professor I had when I was getting my master's degree who had read his stuff but said she would never assign him for reading in a class because he was too long-winded. How about you? I first discovered him at the very beginning of my dissertation research in an introduction to sensation fiction that talked about how he adapted one of his plays into a novel and then back into a play. And I'd never heard of, you know, any kind of adaptation going that direction or being that elaborate. So I was intrigued and started reading him. Wow. And then both of us ended up writing dissertation chapters about It's Never Too Late to Men. So maybe we can say a little bit about what that novel is about and what Reed was trying to do with that novel and how Reed was famous for writing social problem novels. So he was really interested in ameliorating social conditions around him. And It's Never Too Late to Men was actually an attempt to improve conditions in prisons um, because there was a lot of hard labor being done and one particular machine called the crank. Reed had a lot of issues with but there was also like a romantic subplot going on about a guy that went to look for gold uh, to prove himself worthy to a lover back in England Um, it's one of those really huge mammoth plots kind of like a Charles Dickens novel would have so I don't know Leilani if you want to chime in about how you would summarize it's never too late to mend yeah I think the mention I made earlier of the play that was turned into a novel that was turned back into a play was a reference in fact to It Is Never Too Late to Mend and the play that it started from named Gold was about the Australian gold rush of 1851 
And so that was that was sort of the germ, I think, of, of the novel. And then he expanded into um, a whole section of, of prison, you know, fiction um, and prison research. Um, so it's got kind of that dual focus on, you know, what conditions are like in a Victorian prison and also on the other side of the world what's happening uh, in Australia with the gold rush so he covers everything he could possibly think of in that novel and it's pretty glorious <laughs> yeah and to add in another part of the world America I know he was also responding to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin because basically we just really wanted to be a famous author and Uncle Tom's Cabin became one of the best-selling novels well actually it did become the best-selling novel in England during the Victorian era, partly because of international copyright laws and it was easier to reproduce overseas. But Reed kind of saw what Stowe had done, and he's like, hey, I want to write about Britain's equivalent of a slavery issue, which is the issue in, in prisons. So he lumped together this romance plot and um, put it with this prison plot. And I guess in the original play, Gold. Do you know if that wasn't as successful as his novel was, and that was part of why he wanted to change it? It was not as successful as his novel, um, but I believe it was his first play that was not a collaboration, and it was it was pretty successful, not super successful. And of course, he didn't think it was as successful as it would have been in France. <laughs> he was. <laughs> always looking for the fame and glory but no it was not as successful as his novel oh that's interesting do you know why he thought it would be more successful in france he seemed to think that the french respected authors more and specifically that french theater managers and actors respected authors more and paid them better and listened to them (laughs) so that was his production uh i hope to continue research on that but yeah so one of the things you write about in your dissertation chapter right is copyright law yeah actually i think it's fascinating he wrote gold um and that's gold with an exclamation point which i find charming uh he wrote gold almost as like a preventative measure um, so that when he wrote his novel it's never too late to mend once people started adapting that he could start suing them um, <laughs> for copyright infringement which which actually worked um, he somebody did adopt it is never too late to mend without his permission not knowing that he had written a play that he took large chunks verbatim from that play put it in the novel and then this person adapts it, um, George Conquest, I think his name was, and Reed starts suing this guy and won um, because, you know, he'd already written a play and then he'd written the novel. And so he had the rights to both the play and the novel and that could not be adapted again. So um, people who continued on in trying to get author copyright used Reed as a resource um, in future Litigation. This was a guy, clearly, that was very protective of his reputation, and he cared about his stuff being protected with copyright, and he wanted to have integrity as an author. Yeah, he, he definitely saw himself as sort of a, a modern epic writer, and certainly you know, sued a lot of people in pursuit of his reputation. <laughs> 
It'd be interesting to see how that would translate into modern times. Because people, you know, they're definitely... There's a lot going on with that now. He was sort of a visionary in a sense, right? And caring so much about copyright law. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's he's part of the reason that we have copyright law. Yeah. So I guess it's, it's curious to think about why he fell out of fame so quickly. There's a scholar, one of the few scholars, other scholars, who has written about Charles Reed, Mary Poovey, in an article that is kind of sadly titled Forgotten Writers, Neglected History, Charles Reed and the 19th Century Transformation of the British Literary Field. Uh, Mary Poovey says that Charles Reed fell out of fame in just like a mere 30 years. So pretty much when the Victorian era ended, people were not that interested in reading Charles Reed anymore. And a few authors of the following generation, George Orwell in particular, wrote quite a bit about Charles Reed and about why he was no longer relevant in the 20th century. George Orwell says that one of Charles Reed's charms is that he has so much useless knowledge, which is kind of like a backhanded insult, really. Orwell also says Mr. Reed is unsurpassed in a second class of English novelists, but he does not belong to the front rank. His success has been great in its way, but it is for an age and not for time. I can, I think I can relate to that as a Victorian studies student in the 21st century. I mean, he, I think that he was very good at melodrama at the, I mean, I think there's some research on him that talks about like his reviewers seeing him as like very masculine and we don't usually associate melodrama with the masculine in Victorian studies, but um, to the extent that we want to, like, gender code any of this in the first place. But he does have a very, nonetheless, um, a melodramatic style that I don't think translates super well to the late 20th and early 21st century. So I wonder if that might be part of Hmm. the reason he kind of fell out of favor. But melodrama having a resurgence to read Charles Reed. I say. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, you know, if Charles Reed could make a comeback. If there's, even though he probably wouldn't be very happy if people adapted his stories to film or other forms of media. I mean, it seems like there definitely could be relevance. I was kind of surprised that, you know, with how much Victorian studies uses Foucault, that Charles Reed isn't more popular among Victorianists because he, I mean, it is never too late to mend. At least a third of it takes place in a prison. So, and it, it, it actually, I mean, as you talk about, had, you know, a significant impact on real life prison policy at the time. So I think he should make a comeback. Yeah. He did extensive research. Like he spent a lot of time in prison, studying prison life before he wrote It's Never Too Late to Men. Which is probably something that, you know, is a, it makes him worthy of reading from a historical light, if nothing else, in today's time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He collected, like, encyclopedic amount of clippings from newspapers and just, like, random random things in his, his notebooks. I think he even needed, like, an index for his index. Wow. 
That's crazy. And I think that's like a literal saying that's in his notebook, wow. like an index of indices. That's cray. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sometimes I read him and I'm like, oh, Charles Reed. And it's just kind of a, I don't know, he's he's very plot-driven and compelling. you got to give him that. Uh, so I, I'd say, you know, if you're a Victorianist, you like Victorian literature, he's not... He's not a George Eliot, but, you know, you should read him. He's fun. Yeah. Well, I guess I could uh, end with a quote that is credited to Reed that has had some staying power. So he said, So a thought, and you reap an act. So an act, and you reap a habit. So a habit, and you reap a character. So a character, and you reap a destiny. So this quote has actually apparently had some saying power and been adapted, which you probably wouldn't like, <laughs> to the following quote uh, that was actually used in the film Iron Lady in 2011, spoken by Meryl Streep, who's playing Margaret Thatcher. Um, and she says, mind your thoughts, for they become your words. Mind your words, for they become your actions. Mind your actions, for they become your habits. And mind your habits, for they become your character. Watch your character, for they become your destiny. So there's a little taste of Charles Reed for all you listeners out there. Um, maybe that will entice you to pick up Charles Reed and who knows what sort of wonderful surprises there will be in store. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, annotationspodcast.wordpress.com and our Annotations Podcast Pinterest page for links to further information about the contents of this episode. Look for past episodes and catch our next episode, the first of a series of interviews about literary scholarship in the wider world called Unexpected Archives, on our website, SoundCloud, and iTunes.